Podcastle, episode 415, for May 10, 2016, Responsibility Descending, by G. Scott Huggins, rated PG. Hello and welcome to Podcastle, where your imagination powers our aircastle's engines. I'm your host for today, Graham Dunlop. In September last year, we ran a story reprint that was very well received. So well received, in fact, that the author was inspired to write another in the same world. That story was episode 383, Abandoned Responsibility, and we're enormously pleased to introduce today's story, Responsibility Descending, by G. Scott Huggins. And this, my friends, is a Podcastle original. Your narrator for this, who else could it be? It's the one, the only, the inimitable Mr. Maple Leaf himself, Wilson Fowley. If you've visited these shores before, you'll be very familiar with Mr. Fowley's smooth voice. If not, well, I think you'll be impressed. And now, folks, if you thought living at the top of a ship's mast was difficult, you're about to learn responsibility is even more difficult. Enjoy the story. Responsibility Descending by G. Scott Huggins The century ship burned. From her mainmast cell, Responsibility heard the screams and the roar of the flames. Flames engulfing square miles of sailcloth and rope. She scrabbled at the trap door, but it was bolted shut. Outside, her mother burned the ship, searching for her. Responsibility peered out the tiny windows, but smoke filled her eyes. She tried to cry out, to shout to the dragon that she was here, was burning. But what good would it do to shout that name? Her mother knew it not. Her mother had called her... Responsibility hid under her wings from the flames, vainly trying to remember the name that would save her. She woke, gulping down great draughts of clear night air. Azriacam. She clung to the name more fiercely than she had clung to any boat out in the great ocean. My name is Azriacam. Sleep forgotten, breath slowing, she rolled out of bed and strode to her balcony. Her cell was gone, but her new rooms also overlooked the sea from a great height, a comforting and frightening resemblance. From this ledge the walled face of the mountainside dropped five hundred feet to the spinward court of the crane-torm, Beyond its curtain walls, ten thousand lamps shone like orange stars on the descending terraces of Stormbirth, throne city of Halsket. Below that lay the darkness of the sea. Azriacam thought about visiting her brother's rooms, but Asnai would be asleep. She could go down and wake Jad, the other refugee from Achaia, but no. She did not want to wallow in memories. She wanted to escape them. She stepped up on the low ledge of the railing and spread her arms, her wings. They went out a long way. On Achaia, where she had been a lone freak, she would never have dared this, to stand in plain sight, eight-foot wing arms catching the wind. It brought on a moment of nausea and fear. But here, this night, she was a half-dragon of the royal blood. She leapt. She knifed through the air like a diving bird, tasting freedom, and the pain shooting along her flight muscles was sweet agony. Pulling up, she swept low over the outer wall. The guards nodded, but did not challenge her. She was free as any other half-dragon in the kingdom. Except that she was not. She beat at the air with her wings for height, and managed only to slow her descent. Other half-dragons could truly fly. She had seen them, but all she could manage was a controlled glide, lower and lower, unless she found a rising thermal. The square beyond the spinward gate rushed up at her, and she braked. The humans in the square paused, watching her alight on the flat stones. There was a knot of merchants from the far isles, wrapped in bright winding garments. Several couples clasping hands, dressed sparsely but well for the warm evening a bespectacled old woman in a cloak, and two children gaping in frank envy. 
but no one curled a lip at her or asked what she was doing out of her cage, much less threatened to beat her. It was glorious. She ran into the maze of wonders that was Stormbirth. No fear of being lost. The Crentorm could be seen for a hundred miles out to sea. Behind it, the immovable moonspike in the lightward sky was a spear of silver, casting black shadows broken by lamp-lit doorways. From them wafted smells of sizzling food and perfumes, snatches of song, and the murmur of conversation. A roar of applause sounded before her, and Azriakam broke out of the street into a narrow plaza. To Darkward was a cliff wall with guards manning an arch. Then she realized where she was, the upper edge of the bowl theater. The applause continued. The show was ending. She used her height to gaze over the wall. Thousands of people stood, applauding the performers on stage below. Most were human, with some half-dragons like herself. Even a few dragons reclined on their great raised dioceses. Now that she knew where she was, she looked around. Jera! she shouted, finding the fruiterer's stall. Princess Azriakam! shouted the big man. Come quick before the crowd hits! Azriakam glanced over her shoulder at the throng of theater goers pouring from the gates of the bowl and ran to the fruiterer's side. Thank you, Jera, she said. One of the peaches, please. He handed her the enormous red-orange fruit. Azriakam needed both fingers and both thumbs to grasp the great peach. Humans might envy her ability to fly, but Azriakam couldn't help thinking how much easier life would be with a full complement of their fingers. Your Highness is always welcome, Jera grinned, but I can't help thinking the crane-torm must provide fruits far better than mine, and without getting your wings bruised. Azriakam laughed. Where would the fun in that be? Next time I'll come after seeing the play. She stepped aside, folding the long wing bones she had in place of fingers tightly about herself. Biting into the peach, she let the sparkling sweetness run into her mouth. Such a change from sad Achaia, where all was dried, salted, and preserved. Fresh fruits and vegetables had been a luxury for the higher ranks. By the way, said Shera, who's your shadow? Guard of some kind? Guard? I'm out for a walk. What need of guards here? She followed his gaze over the heads of the crowd and saw the bespectacled old woman from the square. Azriakam stared directly at her. The figure straightened, gripping its cloak with brass-ringed fingers. Its hood fell off, and torchlight shone off long white hair, smoky lenses, and a pale, scared face. It ran. Who? started Azriakam. She had never seen that person before. Who would dare follow her, and why? Gripping her peach, she elbowed her way through the crowd. By the time she won free of it, the cloaked shape was a speck of darkness speeding into the night, far beyond Azriakam's ability to run. To run. Azriakam launched herself into space at the edge of the bowl and curved right. She gathered speed, scanning the sloping streets beside her. Far off, she could just see the white-haired shape. It was slowing. Whatever it was, it thought it had evaded pursuit. Then it remembered it had been watching a half-dragon. It looked up, saw Azriakam sliding through the air. It turned and ran, dashing up a flight of stairs to the next terrace. Cursing, Azriakam banked hard, felt a muscle stretch as she snapped around. The face of the terrace swelled in her vision. She braked, shooting herself upward. She was going to stall. More by luck than skill, she hit the top of the stairs. And her quarry. Slammed into it, tumbling with her target. Sharp edges dug painfully into her wings. Reflexively, she clutched it. It shrieked and rolled to its feet, shedding its cloak. It turned to face her, and Azriakam stopped breathing. The girl was even younger than herself, dressed in a thin brown tunic. Her arms and legs were thin, emaciated. Over them she wore brass... armor? No, 
It was like a second set of bones with metal joints. They joined behind the girl's back. Each joint whirred with energy as the girl slowly backed away, staring out of the dark, brass-rimmed spectacles. Only they weren't spectacles. They were implants, replacing the girl's eyes. What are you? Azria Cam whispered. For a moment, the girl's mouth opened. Then she fled. Azria Cam scrambled up, but the girl's joints whined and her limbs blurred. She vanished up the stairs to the next terrace. Azria Cam stared after her. She picked herself up, stretching her burning wings. Nothing was broken. Unsteadily, she walked home. Morning came far too early. Azria Cam sat at breakfast, wishing she could rest her elbows on the table. Her wings got in the way. Late night, Azri? She snapped her head erect and met cool blue eyes in the hard, black-bearded face of the crown of Halsket, David the Fourth. Yes, father. The words still came with difficulty. She had only known him three weeks. When Azriakam had been only two, the consortium had tried to conquer all the near-island kingdoms. Crown David had been caught away from Stormbirth on one of his smallest islands. Only a hidden underground fortress had allowed him to survive. Believing him dead and the kingdom lost, Azriakam's dragon consort mother, Shaliam, had fled with her infant daughter. Only Shaliam truly knew what happened next. She had foreseen that Azriakam and her brother would meet at sea. She had left Azriakam on the deck of a century ship, traditional prey and foe of Halsket's free navy, charging them to keep the girl safe. Shaliam had disappeared, but David's kingdom had fought back, forcing the consortium to accept it as a client ally rather than a conquest. Not knowing her name, Ekaya's crew had called the strange half-dragon girl Responsibility and given her just enough food, exercise, and consideration to keep her alive, in case Shaliam came back. Doing what? The crown's voice was not harsh, but it was strange. Responsibility, Azriakam, found herself missing old Kanna from the century ship. She knew and appreciated his rough kindness, but her father was a stranger. I flew down to the theater. She didn't want to mention her strange follower. Unthinkingly, she reached for a roll, then hissed in pain. Without guards? The crown's voice was sharp. I've warned you about that, Azriakam. And what have you done to yourself? She could not meet his eyes. How angry was he? Anger was pain, was punishment. I... I just flew... She stammered. Father... Her brother, Asnai, began, but the crown held up a hand. Azriakam, look at me. The crown's voice was a command she must obey, but his eyes pierced. A princess does not cringe. She speaks truth and accepts the consequences of her actions. Azriakam froze, shaking. David, a soft alto said. The king looked round. A deep blue, finely scaled hand rested on her father's arm. Dragon consort Kyria leaned over, fixing Azriakam with eyes as yellow as Azriakam's own. Kyria was David's second dragon consort, wed after Shaliam had been lost. In human form, Azriakam's stepmother appeared as a beautiful matron, though hairless as dragons always were. I think we have been lax regarding Azriakam's education. Azriakam panicked. Lax? What did she mean? Was she going to have her locked up? But the consort said, She has never had the instruction, or even the example, any other young half-dragon takes for granted. She needs to stretch her wings, not overstretch them, as she is clearly doing. She needs a teacher, and now. The crown froze. Then he nodded. Who? Kyria studied her. Another half-dragon, certainly. Elazar, The king gripped his consort's hand, looked at Azriakam. Elazar, then. Will you listen to him, daughter? Yes, said Azriakam softly. She met Kyria's eyes. Thank you, lady. She rose. Pray excuse me, I am fatigued. She stumbled from the hall. 
Rapid footfalls soon sounded behind her. She flinched, but was relieved to see her brother. She dropped her arms, let her wingtips brush the floor. She swayed on her feet and welcomed his strong arms as he helped her down the corridor. If she trusted anyone completely here, it was Asnai. It was he who had freed her from her prison life when her century ship had captured him. In truth, they had freed one another. "'I must apologize for father,' he said. "'He's not trying to be harsh, but he's frightened.' "'He's frightened?' Azria Kam protested. "'Yes. He thought you were lost twenty years ago. "'Now he has you back, and he doesn't know whether you'll fly off again "'or get yourself killed. "'Part of him wants to lock you up until he's sure.' "'Azria Kam froze at the thought, huddled beneath her wings. "'But he knows he can't do that, so he issues commands.' He's the crown. That usually works. He's trying to be a father to you, and he's ashamed that he failed you for so long. Failed me? How? By leaving you on that ship for twenty years. It was too much. Azriakam broke down sobbing. The last thing she remembered was her brother putting her in her bed and tucking her in as if she were a child. The smell of rich food woke her. It was afternoon. Who had brought? The figure on her ledge rose to his feet, and she sat up. I thought I might have to wake you. You can't afford to miss another meal. Eat. The enormous platter beside her bed bore a huge fish almondine on a bed of spinach. Dates, stuffed with dark, strange-smelling meat, accompanied it with sliced avocado but it was the stranger she stared at. Taller even than she, his scales were of bronze. He wore practically nothing but a sort of harness that affected basic modesty, filled with strange tools. Who are you? Elazar, your father did say. I am pleased to meet you, princess, but not pleased to have to repeat myself. Eat. Azriakam found she was hungry, but... Won't you join me? I have eaten. But this is far too much for me. It is not. The older half-dragon approached, and she yelped as he gripped her wingtip in two fingers and raised it. Much pain, he asked. Some, she winced. I shouldn't wonder if you've a badly healed hairline fracture here. What did you hit with it? Harad's throat, she muttered, withdrawing her wing. During their escape from Akaya, she shuddered, remembering the crunch and give of cartilage. A man's throat? You're lucky you can fly at all. These are for flying, lady, Elazar said, raising his own wingtip. Nothing else. You've been raised by humans and fed by humans, but you can't be a half-dragon and live like humans. Eat. Azriakam ate, and her tutor held forth. To fly, half-dragons must not only eat more than humans, they must eat differently. Our wing spars are not just hollow— but reinforced with magnesium. Your meal is rich in this metal. Metal? Azriakam sniffed one of the meat-stuffed dates. The flesh was rich to the point of bitterness, contrasting the sweetness of the date. Elazar snorted. Even humans need iron. You need more. Hence the liver. Never tasted the metal in blood? You will before I'm done with you. Fighting with your wingtips indeed, gods help us. I was escaping prison. What should I have fought with? Azriakam snapped. To be sure. Your brother told me. It showed courage. A desperate courage I will teach you to avoid the need for. Ideally, we fight with these. He drew from his harness a blade and handed it to her. The hilt was light and strangely twisted, but it wrapped around Azriakam's thumb and forefinger like a glove. The blade was thinner than her finger. It went effortlessly where she pointed it. Air swords, I will teach you to fly and fight, now that your eating lesson is over. Azriakam looked down at the plate, astonished to find it empty. Come, said her tutor. Wordlessly, she followed him from the room to begin her lessons. It was dusk on the fifth day of her training, and she was still hungry when they climbed the stairs back to her chambers. When we can return here through that balcony, starting from the spinward court, 
said Elazar. I'll have nothing left to teach you. Azriacam shook her head. For hours each day he had exercised not just her wings, but every part of her. He had shown her the beginnings of air-sword technique. As tired as she was, her wings no longer hurt, as they had after the first day, but vibrated with life. She gazed out the balcony. You're ready to fly again, aren't you? She nodded. Just so. If I hadn't intended that, I'd have had a heavier dinner prepared. But you'll wear appropriate gear. It's waiting. He pointed at her bed. A harness lay there, and Elazar excused himself while she changed. It was tough but light, covering only her breasts and hips with soft leather. There were points along it for hanging tools, but only bronze knobs hung from them. What are these? she asked, joining him on the balcony. Waits, he said. A half-dragon should be able to fly while carrying things, and you might as well get used to it. We'll fly as level as we can, to the bay and back. Ideally, we'll land right back here, before the spike dims too much. He ran and leapt off the balcony. Azriacam followed. Despite her best effort, she ended up thirty feet below her mentor. He dropped to meet her and slid leftward. She followed. Stormbirth unrolled below them. Azriacam could see the bowl theater to her right, but Elazar angled toward the heights of the dragon city. Here the architecture was massive, laid out in enormous blocks of stone, and Azriacam was abruptly conscious that they shared the sky. She saw other half-dragons out for an evening's flight, but more than that, she saw the dragons themselves plunging through the sky like century ships of the air. The hexagonal tower is the Dragon Queen's residence, Elazar called, and the open square to Darkwood is the Great Forum. Azriacam looked down, and her breath caught. Just to the left of the Forum, a small tower with a flat roof revealed a lone human figure facing the sea, and the colors of dusk shone like fire along its brass frame. Azriacam dived. Behind her, she heard Elazar shouting, but she had to see. She braked against the speed of her dive. The pale figure stood motionless, as if in a trance, lenses pointing skyward, arms outstretched. It was the girl from the other night. She was alone. Folding her wings, Azriacam landed. This close, she could see the girl's limbs twitching with tension. No, pain. Yet she did not move, despite Azriacam's arrival right in front of her. She stood as if locked in place. Who's there? The words came as if ripped from her. Azriacam approached slowly. This close, she could see the whole of her erstwhile follower. With horror, Azriacam saw that the brass skeleton that started from her spine and neck was a part of her. The long bones of brass sprouted from it and ran down her limbs, piercing her flesh at the joints until they terminated in rings around every finger and toe. A thin cable connected the back of her head to a hole in the roof. "'It's me,' said Azriacam quickly. Elazar would surely come after her, doubtless displeased, but she had to speak to this girl.' Why were you following me? The girl's breath came faster, but she still did not move. Are you here to kill me? Kill you? repeated Azriacam, shocked into incoherence. The girl swallowed. You have found me. Promise to kill me, she said, and I'll tell you everything. Azriacam gaped. I just want to know who you are. Look at me, at least. I cannot see you, said the girl, and I cannot move. They have turned off my limbs and my eyes. It's my punishment to stand here without food or water or rest or sight. The words were a dull rasp. Azriacam's skin crawled. Even her prison had not been so bad as this. For how long? Who knows? The girl cried, in a voice bereft of hope. Azriacam reached a decision. How do I free you? She looked at the bewildering skeleton of brass that connected the girl's limbs to her spine. Free me? I wouldn't leave an animal caged like this. How do you... work? she demanded helplessly. You can't free me, said the girl. Can't you see? The frame is part of me, and I can never be free of it. They're using my eyes to watch you even now, I promise. 
If you want to help, kill me and end this. As if to punctuate her words, shouts rang from below. Azriakam ran to the edge of the roof. At the bottom of stone stairs that ran up the tower's face, two guards stared up at her. Reflexively, Azriakam ripped two of the weights from her harness and dropped them fifty feet down onto the guards' heads. Both men staggered and fell heavily. Azriakam rushed back to the girl. If they were using her eyes... Azriakam pulled the cable from the girl's head. She gasped. I can see! Now what? Azriakam snapped. There's, there's some kind of control on my back. I've never seen it. Azriakam looked frantically. Her back was a mess of scar tissue and implants. She found what looked like a switch. It moved under her fingers, and the girl collapsed to the roof, tiny motors whirring. Then she staggered up. Dark lenses looked into Azriakam's eyes. I'm free! Of course, this left them trapped on the roof on a wide courtyard. The guards were moaning. Well, she had escaped from her cage with Jad. Can you ride on my back? she asked. The girl snorted. I weigh three hundred pounds. We'd both die. I'm not leaving you here. I've seen you run. Can you escape this place? I have to. But where will I go? The Cranetorm. Tell them you're my guest. Though she'd never said the words. The Princess Azriakam. What's your name? Threlia. Azriakam launched herself off the roof in a flat glide. Below her, Threlia climbed down the side of the tower, her mechanical joints blurring as she broke into a run. Suddenly, a diving bronze shape cut in front of her. Ground. Now, Elazar snapped. Azriakam had forgotten her tutor. Now she obeyed, setting down in the next street. Do you have any idea what you've done? the old half-dragon demanded. That was the consortium's embassy you violated. Azriakam's voice failed her. The consortium? The kingdom's former enemy and dangerous ally? Asnai's consortium? Azriakam swayed. Back to the crane, Tom, Elazar growled. Now. When I was ten, I began to grow weaker, Threlia said, sitting in Azriakam's chamber. By the time I was twelve, I could barely crawl. The doctors called it dystrophy and said I would waste away and die. Elazar and Asnai sat with them. While waiting for Threlia, Azriakam had explained what had happened the other night. Threlia had arrived while she was finishing. The consortium said they would save my life, and they did. She raised her hands, joints whirring. By turning me into this. The warframe lets me move, makes me faster and stronger than any human. She sighed, looking very tired. But it hurts, and I belong to them. Slavery is illegal under consortium law, said Asnai, his face darkening with rage. Collecting debts isn't, the girl said. I have to work off the cost of the warframe. How much is that? asked Asnai. Millions, whispered the girl. I am very expensive, but not valuable, as you saw. And what about your eyes? said Azriakam, chilled with mounting fury. They took them, the girl said simply. Now they can record anything they want from my vision whenever I return. I was ordered to follow and observe you when you went out. Aren't you a little conspicuous? asked Elazar. I watched her three nights. She never saw me. The fruit seller pointed me out. Azriakam's blood chilled. But why would the consortium want to watch me? Dark lenses met her eyes. You have returned from the dead. The ambassador knows that the king loves you. You might be used as a lever on an ally the consortium deeply wishes to bring more firmly under its control. Asnai flushed. Bastard! Elazar shook his head. Bitch. I knew the Ambassador Selena was determined to press the consortium's authority in this kingdom. I did not know she would go to such lengths. But then your return, Princess, was strange enough that it must have tempted her to use you. She will not use me, said Azriakam. On the contrary, said Elazar, she already has. A knock sounded at the door. The herald entered at Elazar's bidding. 
The crown and throne require the presence of all here in the royal hall. Azriacam's eyes widened, but Elazar's only hardened. That will be Seleno, the old half-dragon said. Say little. Silence awaited them in the royal hall. Its immense dome enclosed them like an arena. Hanging from it were trophies, plundered from a thousand ships when crown and throne had ruled the free navies, before the kingdom's sea power had been subordinated to the consortium. The dark red coils of throne Eluan of the Halsket wound around the great dais, her wings stirring the air. On her shoulders sat crown David. His face was stern. Azriacam forced herself to look away from the twin monarchs and study the tall woman before them, Ambassador Seleno. Nearly as tall as Azriacam herself, she was an athletic woman with hair in a long braided queue. She wore the uniform of the Consortium Navy, minus rank insignia, a reminder of where her power lay. On seeing Threlia, her eyes blazed. "'Ah, oh, I thank your majesties for the prompt return of my property,' she said, her smooth contralto echoing in the hall. "'Such cooperation can only strengthen the ties between the consortium and its peoples.' "'Your highness,' she spoke to Azriacam, "'I presume you will make an appointment before again gracing our embassy with your presence.' "'You presume a great deal, Seleno,' rumbled throne Eluan. The crown's daughter has made no admission of any visit to your residence. We have only your word. Very well. Let us hear her, Selena smiled. Your Highness, did you trespass on the roof of the consortium embassy this evening, attack the guards, and steal away Threlia, my servant? Azriacam looked up at her father. The crown's face was white and expressionless. A princess speaks truth and accepts the consequences of her actions. Those had been his words. She might as well find out whether he meant them. I did land on your roof, because I saw your slave, whom you'd set to follow me. I did not know it was yours. I hit your guards, because I thought them criminals. And I freed your slave from her torment, though she surely left on her own. The crown's face was thunderous, but silent. Seleno spoke. It is well you have spoken truth, Highness, for we have the evidence on film. A lie would ill-suit one of your line. Now we have but to discuss the amends due the consortium for your crime, and this unpleasantness will be behind us. Hold, cried the crown. And what of your setting a spy upon my daughter in my own city? Seleno smiled. Majesty, your daughter is overwrought. Doubtless her long captivity among century-ship barbarians has unhinged her. I gave no such command. She saw my servant and imagined she was followed. "'I do not!' cried Azriacam. "'Well,' said the ambassador, "'have you proof?' "'I have your slave. Threlia told me the story.' "'Threlia is no slave, but an indebted servant.' one who might tell any lie to avoid paying her just debt to the consortium. Her testimony cannot be valid against a free consortium citizen. Azrikam's temper snapped. I see. I'm to be mad, and she's but a slave. I'd rather be either than a lying slaver like you. Behind her, Elazar groaned, but the ambassador grinned like a shark. A liar? I see. "'Then I challenge you, Princess Azriacam.' "'Challenge?' "'She couldn't mean. "'The choice of weapons is yours. Second thoughts? "'A pity. "'Cowardice befits one of your blood "'even less than falsehood.' "'Suddenly Elazar was in front of her. "'I am her second. "'The Princess Azriacam chooses air-swords, of course.' "'Seleno nodded. "'Of course. "'Please speak with my vice-consul to arrange matters.' "'Your Majesties?' she bowed. Crown David looked ashen and ready to explode. "'The amends are quite satisfactory, by your leave.' Azriacam stood frozen as she walked out. At midnight Azriacam heard a soft knock at her door. Elazar and Asnai entered. 
I told you she'd be awake, her brother said. Elazar nodded and stood before her. The duel takes place in a week. I insisted you have that much time to recover. You'll have some time to train. Azrikam looked at Asnai. Is the cr- is father very angry? Furious, Asnai said. It was all the throne could do to keep him from declaring war on the consortium tonight. I told you to say little, said Elazar. But I couldn't just let her. What? Lie, barked Elazar. That's her profession. Slander you? How would you have been hurt? Your honor and courage may do you credit, but you let the ambassador use them to hurt your father and bring us to the brink of war with the consortium, a war we cannot win. Azriakam looked to her brother for denial, but Asnai shook his head. You have a responsibility, said Elazar, to your line and your kingdom. Responsibility. She had always thought that being a responsibility was imprisoning. It had never occurred to her that having one could be just as confining. "'What shall I do?' she whispered. "'You cannot refuse this duel. Selena would insist on your disgrace. It would be just as useful to her as your death. You could never wield power and would always be a source of public shame to the crown. You must win.' He drew his air-blades and handed them to her. The metal was cold under her fingers. "'Please accept these,' he said. "'As my gift.' "'Are they likely to do her any good?' "'Asnai's voice was bitter. "'Selena is an accomplished swordswoman. "'She's killed before.' "'Yes, it's a pity your sister can't simply drop darts on her head, "'the way she managed those guards with the brass training knobs. "'She has natural talent. "'How did you learn that raised among humans?' "'Azriakam flushed dark blue. "'I was kept at the top of the century ship's mainmast,' she said. There wasn't a lot to do, so I sometimes tried to hit people with my food. And other things. I got good at it. A century ship's mainmast is three hundred feet high, said Elazar, eyes widening. No wonder that was easy for you. Unfortunately, it's useless. You'll be fighting indoors, and you've already chosen your weapons. He sighed. The most experienced duelist can be overconfident, and she is as confident as I've seen. "'Tomorrow we must find a way to rattle her.' "'Worse than me?' thought Azriakam. "'Morning was a long time coming. "'But the week flew by. "'Azriakam walked toward the royal hall, "'air-swords wrapped around her fingers, "'pointing at the ground, wings folded up. "'She no longer wore the training harness. "'Elazar had seen to her outfitting.' Instead of brass weights, her new dueling vest had scabbards for two knives. These were not weapons, but tools. The short, thick trophy knife and the spike of the misery cord, the mercy knife to be plunged into the heart or brain of a mortally wounded foe. She tried not to think about whether Seleno would be wearing similar tools to be used on her. The crest of her father's house, the crowned head of a dragon, was embroidered across her breasts in gold thread. She had not been able to face her father, nor he, apparently, her. She was going to die. She knew it as absolutely as she held the air-swords. Elazar had taught her much, but the ease with which he disarmed her showed her lack of skill clearly. In truth, she had learned more of flight these seven days, and that had kept her sane. At the doors, the crown, her father, waited. He looked into her eyes, and the pain and disappointment there stabbed her to the bone. He took her fingers in a strong grip, hands enveloping hers around her sword-hilts. "'I love you, Azriakam, he said, voice a whisper. "'Even in your foolishness, you have risked your life for the powerless, and that does honor to our line. I am proud of you, and so would your mother be. Never doubt it.' Azriakam returned his grip. "'Save Threlia,' she choked. He nodded. "'She will have refuge. Now conquer, daughter.' And he was gone, striding before her toward the throne. He passed by Selena without a word. Azriakam felt her spine straighten, felt a bit more like a crown's daughter. The ambassador waited in the black dueling ring, blades at her waist. 
She wore a dueling jacket, with a scarf wound around her shoulders and left arm. Azriakam stopped twenty feet away. The master of ceremonies, another half-dragon, stepped between them. He held out a cloth. To yield the ring is to yield honor. When the cloth falls, begin. Azriakam watched not the cloth, but her opponent. The half-dragon let it fall and stepped back. Azriakam lunged as Soleno drew. A half-dragon's reach is his best weapon against humans, Elazar had said. Azriakam grinned as the ambassador danced back, parrying her blows. The crystal ringing of swords filled the hall. Now they circled each other. Soleno was trained in the saber. It's a heavier blade, so she'll fight mostly with her right hand. But don't forget about the other sword. She'll surprise you with it. And indeed, Seleno presented her right side to her foe, her left blade arched over her head. Then she attacked. The whip-thin blade sliced the air, too fast to see. Azriakam parried frantically, backing. She blocked three strikes from Seleno's right-hand blade before the left speared the membrane of her right wing. Hissing in pain, Azriakam disengaged. Blood dripped down her wing spar. Do not let her control the duel. Azriakam attacked striking with both blades, using her reach. Seleno blocked her left-hand strike and whipped the end of her scarf around Azriakam's right-hand blade. She had just time to realize that the scarf was weighted before the thick cloth tightened and the air-sword was wrenched from her hand to clatter away outside the dueling ring. Desperate, Azriakam flicked her right wingtip out at Seleno's eyes. Her foe's left air-sword twitched and Azriakam felt the pain of a deep cut along her wing-spar. Gritting her teeth, she lunged with her remaining blade. Thought quick, Seleno met her thrust with both swords together and twisted. Azriakam's air-sword broke, leaving her staring at six inches of blade. Seleno grinned. Azriakam ran. In three steps, she leaped into the air and beat the air, each second expecting to feel a sword through her back. She snapped into a hard turn and climbed, ignoring the pain from her pierced and bleeding wing climbed for the first time in her life. "'The princess has left the field!' she heard Seleno cry. "'Coward!' "'Hold!' Elazar roared below her. "'She remains within the ring.' "'She's twenty feet up!' shouted the ambassador. "'The ring has no upper boundary.' "'Should I grow wings to fight with her?' Seleno spat. "'Should she grow solid bones to fight with you?' Elazar asked. Azriakam strained against the air. The week of training and proper diet had strengthened her, yet she faltered. Her new skills had failed. But perhaps her old life. She beat at the air, knowing it was a forlorn hope. She crossed her arms to yank her knives free of their scabbards and fell, losing vital altitude. Snapping her wings out, she looked down. Twenty feet below her, Seleno looked upward, with her lips curled in a sneer. Azriakam had never dropped anything while flying. She'd never had the chance. And these knives weren't meant for throwing. They were all she had. She slowed as much as she dared and released. Seleno twisted out of the way of her trophy knife. It clattered on the stone floor. The misery cord struck her in the arm. Azriakam's heart leaped up with the shout that rose from the spectators. Then Seleno removed the blade from where it had stuck in her sleeve. It was clean of blood. From such a small height, the light weapon hadn't even penetrated the thick cloth Seleno wore. The ambassador held it up, dropping the air-sword in her left hand. "'Come down, princess,' she called. "'I promise it won't hurt.' Azriakam beat the air with her wings to maintain flight, circling. They burned with pain. She could no longer climb. She looked down at her father, seated on the dragon throne, and met his anxious eyes. The throne's head lifted, and Azriakam met two much larger eyes. The throne of Halsket breathed fire. The billow of flame passed directly under Azriakam, lifting her on a thermal plume. "'What are you doing?' the ambassador shrieked. "'Treachery!' "'Applause!' corrected the throne. For an honorable combatant, you whine over much. My flame never touched you. Azriakam reached the top of the dome. 
All around her the trophies of a hundred battles passed by quickly. A shield, a lamp, a sword, a mace. Folding her wings, she clutched it in all four fingers. An instant she hung there, her feet drawn up against the dome's edge, bracing her against gravity. Her head snapped back, and she saw Seleno just beginning to look up at her. She heaved and wrenched the mace free. Twisting in the air, responsibility dropped. Her wings snapped out. She twisted, clutching the mace. Shrieking with pain, she let it fall on Soleno's upturned, astonished face. Azriakam's feet hit the blood-spattered marble of the royal hall. The ambassador's vice-consul stared white-faced at his chief's shattered skull. Treachery! That weapon! Not agreed to! Elazar advanced on the consortium officer. Soleno's scarf wasn't agreed to either. If there was any treachery, she brought it herself. Say that word again, and you'll answer my challenge. His voice dropped to a whisper. Or get you gone. The vice-consul ran for the hall doors. Responsibility turned, staggering toward the throne, who lowered her head. Crown David leapt off to meet her, but she raised an arm and met the throne's eyes. Why? The throne supports the crown the dragon rumbled, and the crown ennobles the throne. So has our kingdom ever prospered. We act as one in times of need. You are the symbol of that union. Remember that, foster daughter. Azriakam embraced her father under the eyes of the dragon. I will never forget it, she said. And welcome back. Well, I love this follow-up to Abandoned Responsibility. I really enjoyed seeing Azraya Cam's world and her place in it. Just imagine going from a simple, albeit hugely restrictive, world of a ship and its crew into a world where you're royalty, you don't know any of your family, or your place, or the customs, or even what you're capable of. I felt for Azraya Cam as she navigated a new world, stumbling and blundering along the way as you would. I guess she's now proven herself to some degree, but what's next? For now, we'll just have to wonder. Let's turn to feedback. This week it's for episode 404, Territory, by Julie Steinbacher, and read to you by Maura McHugh and Kim Rogers. This was the fourth story in our Artemis Rising 2 event, and it was guest-hosted by the always amazing Amal el Motar. Some great feedback on this story. Mazpower said, I really love this one. I'm a real sucker for LGBT plus genre fiction and modular story design, so I'll be coming back to territory for years to come. I was surprised that the fantasy elements didn't make it into the latter segments, but I ultimately really loved that choice, and I think it adds a really interesting twist on escapism and desperation. The story to me is all about charging into the unknown in order to escape, whether by the magical means in the first section, or the more mundane option of running away from home. That said, I really appreciated the final section using the image of the animal tattoo to show us that some of our means of escape stay with us and keep protecting or validating us, even if they're working on a more symbolic level. All in all, a beautiful story and a definite new favourite. This sort of thing is why I listen. Ariadne's thread said, My God, this was a beautiful story. I actually had trouble following the plot the first time I listened. Just not in the right frame of mind to give the story the concentration needed, I guess. But even so, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. Even when I didn't understand what was going on, the language was so lyrical, so poetic, that I just loved listening to it. And Amal's comments about the story at the end of the episode were really helpful in understanding what was happening in the story that helped me to follow it a bit better on my second listening. And I'm so glad I listened a second time. The plot of the story is so lovely and powerful, and I loved all three sections of the story, the failed magic spell and then the two counterfactuals about Stevie and Lucy's lives without the spell. 
I loved the uncertainty about which story was what really happened and the way the raven and the fox persisted throughout the counterfactual stories. Even in the timelines where the spell was not actually cast, the recurrence of the raven and the fox lent a bit of a magical realist element. And Lion Man said, I had some mixed feelings halfway through this until we got to the last half where we were dropped into what could have been land. It left you wondering which was real and which was imagination. I liked the parts that were more of a what could have happened part of the story. How about you folks? How did you feel about this one? Drop by forum.escapeartists.net and let us know. And now, my friends, it's time to say farewell. Farewell has a sweet sound of reluctance. Goodbye is short and final, a word with teeth sharp enough to bite through the string that ties past to the future. And so, on behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, we say thank you for stopping by and sharing the story with us. We'll be back next week with another Until then, this is your host, Graham Dunlop, reminding you that although slavery is illegal under consortium law, collecting debts isn't. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. To find out more about them, check their website at www.shiva-in-exile.de. Blaise Pascal said, One must know oneself. If this does not serve to discover truth, it at least serves as a rule of life, and there is nothing better.